Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, from the world-famous Barry St. Edmonds in the United Kingdom, Chris Birchall joins us. Chris is the author of Reengineering Legacy Software and is a lead software developer at 47 Degrees. Chris Birchall, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, I think uh, one metric that I like to use is, say, you've got an old hand, somebody who's been on your team for a long time and they're very familiar with the code base. Say they are implementing a new feature, it would take them half a day. So it's quite a small feature. How long would that take a new starter to the team to implement the same feature? I mean, how many days are they going to be spending trawling through the code, trying to figure out what's what? So that can be an interesting thing to measure. Also, I think documentation that I can trust is a really important part of well-maintained software. It's not just about the code, it's about the documentation as well. For example, one project that I worked with recently, it had its uh, like regular code comments, just like describing what the, comment, what the code does, uh, fair enough. But then it seems like the previous maintainers of this software, they also had a policy of never deleting comments it had the previous comments as well relating to code that no longer existed. So it had like present comments and past comments, but then it also had future comments, which were like, this is how we'd like the software to work at some point in the future. But they were all written in the same style in the present tense. So you couldn't tell which one was which. Oh my, that's interesting. I've not encountered that. I mean, I've seen comments for the future. Like ideally this would be more like this, but you know, there's no time today to do that. But just the fact that we're thinking about documentation that you can trust. And I want to dig into documentation for sure, but speaking to the first point you made around that comparison of like the, the person that's been on the project for a number of years knows it inside and out to some degree. Um, and then you have someone new and trying to measure that up against, would that be like a, in a somewhat, someone of an equivalent skill level or is it? I guess it's always, it's hard to measure. It's a very small sample size because you don't get that many new starters on your team, but yeah, I'm saying hypothetically, you've got two developers who are similar experience levels, um, but one is used to the various foibles of the code base and one is new to it. Right, right. Do you use the uh, metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day work? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's a very useful metaphor, although people talk about it so much, I think it's become kind of so normalized. People don't think about what it means anymore. How would you describe it? to someone, say new to the industry? Uh, I remember talking to somebody once about Japan's debt problem because Japan has a, a big issue with um, the, the government borrowing too much money. And I was, I kind of switched the metaphor around. I was like, think about technical debt, but this isn't technical debt, it's real debt. <laughs> Which was a bit strange. Technical debt as a metaphor is like, uh, whenever you want to make a sort of short-term tactical change to your code that maybe is not something that you're very pleased with, it's not the nicest possible solution, but it gets the job done because you're short on time, you've got a deadline or whatever, then you are accruing technical debt. You're like, 
you're taking out a loan. And at some point, you're going to need to pay that back. So you're saying, um, I appreciate that I'm, using, I'm taking a loan now because I'm, I'm low on cash and I need it. But at some point in the future, I'm going to be more solvent and I'll be able to pay that back. I want to switch. We'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more in just a moment. But another thing I wanted to talk with you about was um, during our preparations for this conversation, you were talking about a dead configuration was also a really big problematic thing that you've experienced. How is that different than dead code uh, or just configuration? But like, could you talk a little bit about that for our audience? Yeah. So first of all, dead code is code that does not get executed. I mean, it's it's there in the source code in the code base, but it could be deleted and the behavior of the software would not change. And so it should be deleted because it's just, it's noise. It's confusing when you're reading the code. And then there's something else that I tend to call zombie code, where you're not quite sure whether it's dead or alive, or it, it looks like dead code, but it may be alive, or, the, or vice versa. It looks like it's, it's alive, but actually in production, it's never used. So for example, you might have some component inside your application, and the source code includes two implementations of the same thing. And based on the configuration file or something, an environment variable maybe, one or the other will be chosen. But uh, in reality, in your production environment, only implementation A is ever used. Nobody's ever going to switch it over to implementation B. Um, so that whole implementation B of that component is, is zombie code. It looks like it's alive, but actually it's never used. So you may as well delete it. What are some uh, ways that you've been able to identify that outside of just going having like a hunch that maybe it's not being used? Um, sometimes it comes down to just talking to people, like go around and ask people who are more familiar with the code or maybe the product manager who is makes these decisions about which feature they want, they want enabled and how they want the software to work. Um, sometimes you can like dig through the Git commit history and figure out, do a bit of archaeology, figure out what's what happened there. Sometimes you can do things like taking a look through the access logs of, say, maybe your application is a, a web app or an API or something. So you have request logs and you can look through every request that's happened to your app, that's been sent to your application in the last 10 weeks or whatever. And you can see that this particular endpoint has never been hit in the last 10 weeks. So you, it's dead. You're safe to delete it. I've seen a couple of different ways that teams are trying to navigate that. And you mentioned earlier, when you even when you have, like say, something like technical debt, and you consciously make that decision that you're going to like, take that on right now because you need to get something out the door or something and come back and visit that later. What are some effective ways that you've seen teams take the time to do that is it like to do that because I talked to a lot of people where they're like uh, that someday never seems to actually ever just like manifest and so it just lingers until someone does something about it. Yeah, um, it's quite easy to just. I mean, the worst case scenario is that you don't track this debt at all. You just like, oh yeah, we'll fix that one day, and then you forget all about it. And then slightly better than that is that you create a ticket on your backlog to fix it. But too often, as you say, that just never happens. It just lingers on the backlog forever. I think, first of all, you have to have developers on your team on board and actually wanting to fix this stuff. 
maybe depending on the team some of the developers may have just become inured to it and they don't care about it as much as they used to <laughs> maybe they're a little bit jaded so it's a kind of cultural thing that your developers need to be invested in fixing this stuff and then you need to convince other stakeholders that there is business value in fixing this stuff and it, it the best way to do that i found is to link specific bits of technical debt to specific features that you want to build in the future like if we don't clean up this bit of code here there's feature x is going to take twice as long to develop rather than saying like just waving your hands and saying oh it's going to make the code more maintainable you need to have some kind of concrete tangible piece of business value that it's linked to i think that's some good advice there i always think about how developers will talk about how this is going to make their lives better if they can do something right and it's like well and then there's another part of me that also wonders, and I've talked with some, had a couple of product like managers and product owners on the podcast, and they've, you know, been conversations around how sometimes the, like they sent, it's not that they always feel like there's this interesting tension that kind of manifests between product team and the engineering team. Like they were in separate bubbles and it's like, well, if we just had it our way, the product team would let us do these, take care of these things. But like, I don't think any product managers like, please just take a bunch of shortcuts, make a mess of our code base so that we have to spend more time in the future. I don't know that they're often explicitly requesting that you do that to take tons of shortcuts. Maybe maybe they are, but like, I don't know that that's actually the case either. So where is this like, uh, owners will talk about how like, well, why did it become a mess? Like what happened? Why did, what did we do wrong? Like, you know, it's like, or they weren't even around in the initial conversation if they weren't there. Like, hey, we're gonna have to make some trade-offs now if you're not bringing that up. Do you think it's important for the team to talk about those when they're making those decisions in real time so that then later down the road, they kind of avoid that? Like, well, just to let you know, there's some problems that we've kind of accumulated over the last six months of our sprints. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's all about communication, isn't it? Everything just boils down to we need to talk to each other more. I think people like to kind of form camps, the developers versus the product managers and kind of silo themselves in that way but that's not uh, an effective way to do our jobs so yeah let's let's just talk to each other and i think you're right that product managers are not maliciously trying to just ship features as quickly as they can and take all kinds of shortcuts that would yeah it would just not help them out in the long run so taking a quick step back uh out of curiosity, with uh, 47 um, degrees where, you're, where, you're, where you work at, can you talk a little bit about types of projects that you focus on? Yeah, um, we're a consultancy. We have quite a strong focus on functional programming. So we do a lot of Scala, we do some Kotlin, some Haskell. And we're currently looking at branching out into a, a wider sort of range of technologies as well. Uh, in general, we have a focus on software correctness. We want to try to make software that actually works and try to be as confident as we can that it, it works so we do that by leaning on strong type systems um, we do a bit of formal modeling and formal verification work so kind of trying to build a, a formal specification of what you want your software to do and then some some verification some static analysis of trying to prove properties about your software interesting and is that typically greenfield type projects or do you work on a lot of existing platforms and applications um all kinds of different stuff really so 
we do kind of standalone projects, which are usually greenfield. We just we kind of come in with a specific brief and we have a team of us and we build it and then we work with the client to hand it over to their tech team at the end. Uh, and we also do kind of team augmentation where we come in and embed ourselves in your team and we're working together, pairing with your developers and upskilling them. When we're doing that, it could be legacy, it could be greenfield. That's interesting. I, as someone that also works in, in the consulting world, one of the things I'm always curious about when I get to ch- get the chance to talk to people that also work at consultancies, in, in this type of space, do you find that your position as because knowing that you're only going to be around the project for some period of time, you may or may not going to be continuing to be working on it for several years down the road. And so you might be handing it over or coming in on an existing application and helping do some refactoring or tidying up or improving things or stabilizing or whatever they're calling you and uh, to come in to assist with that, that your role as an engineer is a little bit different than if you were kind of in, you were just a full-time employee working in the product team where like you can make up, make those trade-offs. So how do you, is it because that, do you find that it's actually easier? I don't, I don't, I, didn't, I don't know if you've worked at product companies or organizations where you're just like part of a team and have your own software, but do you see there's a big, quite a bit of a difference with how you interact with the product teams and the other engineers? Yeah. So until now, uh, I've always worked in kind of product teams um, and quite autonomous and empowered teams as well. We're, we're kind of the development team is, owns the whole product. We're doing DevOps and running everything ourselves. So there's a lot of autonomy there. And this is my first consulting role. And when I got into consulting, I was kind of anxious that maybe I wouldn't be able to kind of maintain the same passion about the products that I was working on because they weren't technically my products, they were my clients' products. But I haven't really found that to be a problem. And in fact, I think being a kind of semi-outsider is quite healthy. It's quite good because you bring a fresh set of eyes to the problem and you just have no skin in the game at all in terms of kind of office politics. You can just rise above all of that. And I tend to be quite direct and blunt with my clients. When I think something is wrong in a technical solution, then I will tell them. I don't need to worry about what the ramifications of that are going to be in terms of my bonus or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Well, since you started working at 47 Degrees, when you go into these environments, have you found that you've picked up on some good ways to be a good guest? Because I can imagine there's teams out there that are like, oh, some of them might be super excited to get to bring in some external help. They're like, maybe they're feeling, there's they've got challenges, like we need more help, whether it's just bringing more bodies under the project and other smart brains and different perspectives. But there's also teams that are a little nervous about potentially having new people come in and they're like, well, we could take care of this. Or is this mean that some part of the business doesn't trust us to take care of this? I've seen a lot of different variety of that over the years. And it's not always super easy to navigate. And like every time you go into it, you can't just be like, all right, cool, I'm here. Now everybody's going to trust me to be a good peer on the team because I have to show my value pretty quickly as a consultant, right? And what are the, have you found any, for those listening that might be curious about going into the consulting world, any kind of thoughts about how to be a good guest and win hearts and minds in, in, a, in an effective and honest and way? Yeah, that's definitely an issue to consider because um, we're brought in as kind of experts in our field. And so the team in the client who the existing team 
has to think, does that mean that we're non-experts? Like, what's, what's the power dynamic? What's the relationship here? I mean, you have to be diplomatic and polite. I'm, as I said, I'm blunt and direct when it comes to technical things that I disagree with, but you still, you just have to be a nice person and kind of play, play the room. And I think I've found it best to try to lead by example rather than kind of directly confronting people and saying, you're doing this wrong. Uh, I will try to kind of just show them how I would do it or show people this is the, the method that I would take and kind of try to gradually kind of share that knowledge around, do as much pairing as possible, as much code review as possible. Do you find when you're going into the situation, do you usually have other people from 47 degrees joining you on those engagements as well? Yes. Yeah. My current client, I was on my own for the first few months and it was really lonely, but uh, (laughs) it definitely works better when there's a few of us because you need a kind of critical mass in order to make any kind of real impact in in a business. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So I also wanted to quickly make sure we get a moment to plug your book, Reengineering Legacy Software. That was released, I think, back in 2016 or so. For those listening, um, like who would you des- how would you describe the ideal reader, consumer of, of, that, of that book? More senior, junior level, kind of across the gamut? Yeah, I think it should appeal to anyone, really. There's no specific kind of level of engineer in mind. Uh, I wrote it for a few different reasons. The first, I guess, is that there were already a lot of books out there on refactoring. There's like Martin Fowler's famous refactoring book. There's the Michael Feathers book, whose name I always forget. Uh, Work with Legacy, somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds a bit like the name of my book. But they tend to focus just on refactoring. They're quite uh, kind of laser focused on the code. And I feel like there's a lot more to software than just the code itself. There's like, there's the documentation around the code, there's the infrastructure, the, um, the deployment processes, the team culture, there's decisions like, do I want to refactor or do I want to do a full rewrite? Uh, that sort of stuff. So it's a bit broader in scope and a bit, it's got uh, plenty of practical advice in those areas, I think. And also just because uh, I'm a, lowly developer. I'm not a thought leader who does the conference circuit and that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of reporting from the trenches. I thought that was a, a nice new vo- viewpoint that hasn't really been explored before. Yeah, yeah. I know I haven't had a chance to dig deep into it yet, but I, I did appreciate that there was some chapters in there around like automating, using some automation tools to help your team spin up your, you know, the application, the software in your local environment or wherever your development environment might exist. 
that, especially in the consulting world where you're potentially jumping around lots of projects, like that tends to be one of the most painful things I find about working on other companies' software projects is like how inconsistent that experience can be. One company, like you can get up, up and running in their platform and their applications in like an hour or two. Some takes days, you know, maybe a week, you're finally able to start contributing something and you're like, let alone look at the code. It's just like, I can't even get the thing to run, you know? And so it's like, well, don't look at that documentation. That's outdated. You know, going back to the whole trust documentation thing. Do you have a strong opinion about what type of documentation should go where in terms of in general, like when you have code documentation versus say documentation about like the application setup and getting your local environment set up versus just like architecture related documentation around like the big picture. How do you kind of advocate for that type of material going where? Yeah, I mean, I would just start with the readme at the root of the repository. I mean, that's kind of table stakes for me. You've got to have a, a reasonable readme, but I still, even in 2021, I encounter so many projects that don't even have that, or it's almost blank. So I want a nice, concise, but thorough readme telling me, what is this repo? What does this software do? How do I run the tests? How do I run the thing locally? How does it get deployed? Stuff, just very simple facts like that. Um, And I think in general, I prefer the documentation to be as close to the source code as possible. So ideally within the repo itself. I see a lot of teams who they will use Confluence or some other wiki software um, to write detailed documentation about their, their software, but it's much harder to keep up to date. It's harder to review as well in any serious way because it's not version controlled along with the code. It's that really often part of the pull request process unless you say include a link to it or something. But also there's, you know, I don't know if you encounter this a lot. There's a lot of software projects sometimes incorporate multiple repositories now where you might have a platform that it's like, well, we got like 10 different Git repositories. So then we're like, then you're like, well, how do you provide documentation for the big picture and the low level stuff, but you're like cost referencing and what goes where it can get a little convoluted at times, I think, to know where 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 to even look for the documentation, how to search across it, and or where to add new documentation can be, uh, I think, a challenging thing for developers to answer if it's not clearly documented, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess you need meta documentation <laughs> about the documentation. How would you describe the difference between refactoring and re-architecting? It's just sort of terminology, really, but uh, I'd say refactoring is within one module or within one component of your software, whereas re-architecting takes place at a higher level than that. So it might be, for example, splitting up a monolith into microservices or splitting a large library into smaller libraries or combining two libraries into one, something like that. Do you have a strong opinion about monolith versus microservices approaches? Oh, I'm just going to say it depends. <laughs> There's just, it really does depend. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely value in both. There's pros and cons to both monoliths and microservices. Uh, but people don't tend to pick one or the other for the right reasons, or they don't consider the pros and cons that they should be when they're choosing between them. So I think 
the main reason for choosing microservices would be organizational. Like you've got your team is too big, you've got too many people trying to work on this monolith, they're all getting in each other's way, it's impossible to to make any progress because you're merge conflicting or it's too risky to make changes because the thing has become so big and kind of closely coupled with itself that it's it's really hard to make changes to it without accidentally impacting another part of the system. So if you've got these organizational challenges, that's a great reason to switch to microservices because then you can you can split up your domain into smaller subdomains. Each subdomain is owned by a different product team with its own bounded context and they'll own a suite of microservices and they'll be able to work in isolation and make progress on them. But then in as a trade-off for those organizational benefits, you get a whole bunch of technical challenges that come with microservices. Uh, you've got suddenly you're dealing with a distributed system, which is hugely complex compared to a monolith. Um, you've got possibilities of latency adding up because you instead of just like making a request and then getting a response back, you you make a request and then that makes a request to another service and that calls five other services. You get this kind of request fan out. Uh, then you've got like the problem of how to monitor all of these services instead of just one thing to look after. You've got like a hundred services running now, and you need to monitor them and log them, and all the usual kind of ops stuff is now multiplied by the number of services. It depends, is my answer. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Yeah, um, thanks for digging in that. I like that. I don't know if I've seen like a good uh, decision making tree for this sort of thing like should you use microservices but like is your team too big then yeah i feel like that might be a good time to start thinking about stuff like that but i've being in the consulting world like we come in sometimes and we'll be working with a team that's got like maybe they had five to ten engineers at one point but right now they've got like through two three maybe five engineers but then they've got like 20 good git repositories that they're trying to balance and like it's just those few people and two of them have only been there a year and they're like i don't really understand what does what and how this stuff all fits together and like but i know that if i do this i have to go over here and do something else and like it's it seems like their whole system just slows down like their the work output just starts, starts to slow down I'm not anti-microservices for the record it's just more of a i've seen some challenges where it's like well someone thought that was a good idea and like at one point and was thinking future about the future but maybe a little bit of that pre-mature optimization or hopeful engineering maybe in terms of like, we're going to scale so crazy with our business model that we're going to need, we won't have these problems in the future. And then everybody's like, maybe we just need to rewrite this. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the pendulum will swing back towards monoliths soon enough. I mean, I've been around long enough to see that nothing really changes in this industry. That's true. I'm curious about when do you think it's appropriate to really consider a rewrite? Um, so, my kind of rule of thumb is don't do a rewrite. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> but uh, It's a good rule. <laughs> I think, first of all, you have to have had a good stab at refactoring. You have to have made a serious effort to refactor your code and see how far that can get you. Sometimes that's, that works and you've, you refactor to a satisfactory level of quality and you just move on with your life. You didn't need to do a rewrite in the end. And sometimes you find that, no, there's just no way we can refactor out of this mess. We need to rewrite this thing. But uh, you need to kind of make a serious attempt to 
to figure that out before you just jump into a rewrite. Um, I think the other time that you want to do a rewrite is when you're trying to do a kind of fundamental paradigm shift in your technology. Like maybe you just your company has decided to switch programming languages or uh, like switch to a whole new framework that they've decided this is the company strategy. We're going to use this, this tech stack from now on. And there's no way you can refactor from one tech stack to a completely different tech stack. Have you seen that approach where you just do a full rewrite into a new programming language be just like a one and done type of thing? Or do you feel like that tends to still need a phased approach or to, to, to have one thing kind of over time take over the other thing? Yeah, I think wherever possible, even if you've decided you need to do a full rewrite, you want to make it as incremental as you can. So it's easier said than done, but ideally you want to kind of split the project up into phases with milestones. And at each of those milestones, you've generated some actual tangible business value. And also at that point, you can stop the rewrite if you want to. That's quite an important point. You don't want to be stuck in the situation where you're like fully invested in the rewrite and you have to do it to completion and it's going to take a year and you can't really produce any value during that time. So if you can come up with a way where you can like, you can have these phases um, and you're able to back out at any time if you want to, when if conditions change, then that's the ideal. Yeah, no, I suspect that's probably a reason why a lot of rewrites don't finish because other things pop up and then there's it's hard to put that project on hold or it gets put on hold and then it's hard to get back into it. And then if you're depending on the size and capacity of your teams or you bring in another team to do the rewrite, do they have all the context? Or I've also seen this scenario where organization decides to make a platform change and so they might call a company like us and be like, hey, we just lost one of our senior long-time developers because they went to get a new job because they're not happy that in like six months, the programming language stack, tech stack that they really like working with is no longer going to be what we're doing. And now we've lost the, the old guard and the new guard is kind of like, well, we need, we can't take care of the existing thing. Can you come in and help keep the, you know, keep, keep the lights on while we finish the rewrite. And then like knowing like, well, you think that's going to happen. And, and it's always like, we're 80% of the way done. We just need someone around to help keep it up while the last 20% is finished. I'm like, that's never 20%. And this is, it's interesting seeing all these different types of scenarios, which again, I'm, I'm kind of like you, big advocate for definitely going down the refactoring path as long as you can and put a good effort into that. Because if you can't figure out how to do that, the chances are you're going to end up with similar types of problems with the new tech stack if your team doesn't have those types of skills and, or if they're just chasing the new technology stack or something. And a nice side effect of putting all this effort into refactoring before you jump into the rewrite is that it gives you a much deeper understanding of the old code base. When you do end up rewriting, you now know a lot more about the problem that you're trying to solve. And you've uncovered all of the, the weird corners of the spec that you didn't know existed. We'll be back with our interview with Chris in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? 
shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Chris Birchall. I'm curious if there's any data metrics that you find valuable to gather when you're going into a client engagement or starting to learn something about the software delivery cycle for a team. Like what sort of metrics do you find to be useful to kind of like ask about or start seeking out? Uh, I used to be kind of very metrics heavy and try to do everything in as data driven way as I could, but I I kind of found that there weren't any good metrics to rely on. A lot of it was kind of theater almost or vanity metrics. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I don't really go for that approach so much these days. It's more a bit more about intuition, I guess. That's fair. Is there a industry trend that you found yourself feeling really skeptical about in the recent years? I don't know if it's an industry trend, but blockchain is very hyped these days, and I just have zero interest in that. I'm afraid. The the most recent the other guest I just interviewed recently was the same same answer. So uh, so you're you're in good company, and I am also someone. I'm like I just feel completely ignorant on blockchain. Um, the other guest uh, was talking about how it's like it feels like a really interesting solution looking for a problem to solve, and it's like is is that aligned yet? And so I'm you haven't invested a bunch into NFTs yet or anything? <laughs> not just yet. Not, not just yet. I don't have any just extra money laying around to do that, I guess. But um, that's fair. So I want to get get some advice from those listening. So let's imagine that there's a few software devel- developers listening to the episode and they're thinking, all right, so I've been at this company for a few years now and I don't feel like my concerns about taking care of some of the long-term maintainability of the software are being heard by the product team or insert whatever boogie person group, that the other part of the company that's making the decisions on where they invest time and money on the project. Perhaps they've heard a few too many times they're like, they've asked for things, but they've heard maybe not right now, maybe later, a few too many times, rather than just suggesting that they go find a new job right away, is there anything you would encourage them to consider doing now so that they can um, start making some productive action on that today? If you're looking to kind of fix technical debt and, and start refactoring and improving the quality of your code base, there's a lot of different things that you can tackle, and some are more difficult than others. Some, like in terms of the amount of effort that you need to expend, uh, some are more risky than others, and some provide more value than others. So there's kind of these three axes of uh, what you should tackle when you're trying to improve quality. Um, so you can start with low-hanging fruit, which are very low-risk and low-effort things that just they're kind of no-brainers. You should just go and fix them. Um, and they're kind of, hopefully, they're small enough that you can just kind of do them in your, your off time, your 20% time. And then you can point out to your manager or your superiors or, or whatever that, by the way, look at this. Look what I've been doing in my spare time. Check me out. And hopefully they'll be impressed with that and they'll give you some kind of recognition. And then if you look along the kind of high, the value access, if you can try to tackle some high value things, for example, some things that really improve the productivity of other developers on the team, then they're going to treat you like a hero. That's some good advice there. I immediately had this flashback to several years ago, we were a couple weeks away from trying to release a project for a client. And then 
on Monday, a developer was like, oh, I spent some time over the weekend. I, I wanted to replace this library that they had previously built. They're like, I want to re rewrite that. And then, then they like, I wanted to open source it. And then what ended up happening was it seemed like a nice small thing, but it actually ended up delaying the project a couple of weeks because they never finished like the rewrite the way they wanted to abstract it and open source it first before I'm like, can we just finish the project? And it became this like, became a very high risk thing of like, whoa, you just like blew everything up because this new thing. And we ended up having to like hit pause on that and be like, nope, we need to go back to what we were using. Cause otherwise, you know, we're, we're running late now on the project and the client's like, what do you mean? You rewrote the thing that was already working? Like, so I think that was a time where someone was trying to be helpful and, and thinking like, I'll just do it. They just made the decision. But also on the flip side, there's also I also I don't want every engineer that works for me to come up and have to ask like, hey, can I have permission to take care of this stuff? Just like do it right, and like it's easier to, to, to take care of it. Usually, if it's going to come to someone in a position that has to make prioritizations decisions, they might be thinking, well, we got all these other things. How is this going to impact everything else? And you can kind of trust the developers to use their best judgment at times as well and um, sneak those things into their existing work or whatever. Or, tidy things up as you go, right? So what about in terms of getting buy-in from your peers to start following you down this path of, let's say you're working on improving documentation now, but nobody else is doing it. How do you go about getting everybody to kind of come, or at least a few people to come along with you for the ride? Yeah, that kind of comes down to what I was saying before about leading by example. Um, I think you need to just show people that you're doing these things and also make it as visible as you can. So if you're doing sprint demos, for example, as part of your kind of regular workflow, then do a demo saying, look, I did this refactoring or I fixed the documentation. Even if it's not a new feature, you just show people what you're up to. And there's, there's that famous saying about one broken window. Like if, if somebody sees one broken window in a building and they'll just start smashing other windows and eventually all the windows are broken. But I think right, right. I think it works the other way as well. If somebody walks past this building and they see that you're fixing a window, then maybe they'll want to join you. They're like, oh, maybe this building wasn't completely beyond repair. It can be fixed. Sure. A couple of quick last questions. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis? Oh, that, that was unexpected. I'll have to have a think about that one. Sherlock Holmes is a, uh, a character that I, I really, really love. And so I do tend to talk to people about Sherlock Holmes, even if they don't want me to. I'm not familiar with Sherlock Holmes. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, never read Sherlock Holmes. No, but I think I can see for those... Uh, Everybody's listening. They're not actually seeing this, but I can see there's a there's a big book on the shelf. There says Sherlock on it, um, next to <laughs> next to a big picture of a looks like a cat, I think. So yeah, I'll definitely include links to that. Which is that a specific book or is that like a uh, an anthology of anything by Arthur Conan Doyle is fine. <laughs> well, great. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on software development online? Uh, I'm sporadically on Twitter at C Birchall on Twitter. And I'm CB372 on GitHub. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Chris. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. 